0: percent of women and 30 percent of men will have a pelvic health issue at some point in their lifetime wow and a lot of people will not because of shame embarrassment they don't know how to bring up the conversation their doctors may not know how to bring up the conversation these issues get ignored and people really suffer with them you know they think that they're the only person having these issues you know or they chalk it up to like oh i'm getting older this is just part of aging when there's just so many different things that can be done about A
1: myriad of, of issues that are out there. Welcome to the longevity blueprint podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You are about to hear from Dr. Betsy Greenleaf, who will share tips on how diet can improve our pelvic health and even discuss the prevention of conditions like urinary tract infections, vaginitis, and pelvic pain. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Longevity Blueprint Podcast. Today I have on as a guest, Dr. Betsy Greenleaf. She's a premier women's health expert, entrepreneur, inventor, and business leader who specializes in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery for over 20 years. Dr. Graham is a trailblazer as the first female in the United States to become board certified in urogynecology. She possesses a professional reputation that has led to being sought after by medical societies, associations, and corporations to provide lectures, teaching, and advanced training, in 2018 she was honored with the title of Distinguished Fellow of the American College of Osteopathic Obstetrics and Gynecology for her service and dedication to the field. She holds committee positions on many national women's health organizations. She's a board examiner for the American Osteopathic Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology. She serves as a spokesperson for the American Osteopathic Association with her quotes appearing in many major media outlets. Dr. Greenleaf is the CEO of the Pelvic Floor Store www.thepelvicfloorstore.com, an online store dedicated to finding reliable products for pelvic health. She manages a blog at drbetsygreenleaf.com, and she is the host of Some of Your Parts podcast, dedicated to women's wellness and the notion that you are greater than the sum of your parts. Dr. Greenleaf takes a holistic body, mind, spirit approach to healing and wellness. She believes many of the answers to a healthy life are found within. She views her role in life as your wellness guide. So welcome to the show. Dr. Betsy Greenleaf saying obstetrics and gynecology is a little tongue twister. <laughs> I
0: know. I know. Thank you so
1: much, Stephanie. I'm so honored to
0: be here. Well, tell me your story. How did you become an OB-GYN? You, you know, know and I, it's so funny because I think about that all the time, because that's the last thing that I wanted to do. Cause you're like, who wants to look at that all day long? You know? <laughs> and it's funny. Cause I, when I remember when I was in training, I was at lunch one day in the hospital and I'm sitting with one of my colleagues and she was a podiatrist. And I said to her, ew, how do you look at people's feet all day long? And she looked at me and she's like, are, are you serious? <laughs> you're asking me this. And I was like, oh, I kind of forgot. But, uh, you know, I think it was, I was always interested in medicine and I just didn't know, like, I wasn't the person who went to medical school and was like, oh, I'm going to be an orthopedist or I'm going to do this. Like, I just, I I just wasn't quite sure. And as I went through all my different rotations, I started to realize that, oh, I like this. I don't like that. You know? So I was really drawn to some of the surgical specialties. And I actually started my training in general surgery, but I was the person who like, wanted to talk and get to know my patients and have relationships <laughs> with them and nothing against general surgeons, but a really good general surgeon is a body mechanic. Yeah. You know, they're not, they're not emotionally attached to their patients because they can't be, they need yeah. to get in there, get the job done. Sure. And so I really came down to, I wasn't cut out for that because I'd be doing my rounds and I'd be like, so how do you feel now that you had your gallbladder out? <laughs> so, you know, and then I realized really gynecology was really more of where I could have those relationships with the patient. I could do the surgery. I could do the medicine. And it really had much more of an interest in that. So it took a little
1: long way around, but I, I finally figured it out.
0: So yeah.
1: <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I know you're an expert in pelvic health. So why is
0: pelvic health important? You know, it's so funny. What I want to do actually pretty soon, and, and I'm debating how I'm going to go about this, but I want to make a challenge on like... Instagram or, you know, you know how you see these challenges that go around, that go viral. I would love to have a, a viral challenge where people say their favorite pelvic body part, where they just go outside and yell the word vagina, <laughs> penis. And the reason, because it's almost like that area, the pelvic area, which is from the belly button to the top of the thighs, it's almost like it doesn't exist. Sure. You know, there's um, Americans in general tend to be on a whole, we tend to be very conservative. Um, There's a lot of shame about that area of the body part, male and female. And even in the medical field, you know, I'll find that there are certain orthopedic conditions, certain hip issues that can refer pain to the pelvis that people don't feel in in their hip. And, you know, as soon as an orthopedic doctor hears a a patient say like, oh, my vagina hurts, then they're like, oh my God, not me, go to a gynecologist. So I think that the more we say the words, you become desensitized. Because I was I was like that too. I was shy. I didn't like to talk about body parts. I mean, my grandmother referred to the vaginal area as she called it your business. So she'd be like, you know, I remember being like five years old and staying at her house, and you know, I'd take a shower, and she'd be like, make sure you dry off your business, you know. So we don't even use the right <laughs> the right terminology because right. we're we're embarrassed. So, I mean, luckily my kids, I mean, luckily or unfortunately, I don't know which one they've heard the word so much. It doesn't mean anything to them. They're like, oh, mommy's a vagina doctor. So the more we say the words, the less we're shocked about it. Mm -hmm. And then the more we can talk about it because 50% of women and 30% of men will have a pelvic health issue at some point in their lifetime. Wow. And a lot of people will not, because of shame, embarrassment, they don't know how to bring up the conversation. Their doctors may not know how to bring up the conversation. These issues get ignored and people really suffer with them. You know, they think that they're the only person having these issues, you know, or they chalk it up to like, oh, I'm getting older. This is just part of aging. When there's just so many different things that can be done about a myriad of of issues that are out there. For one thing, incontinence. So peeing, peeing when you don't want to. That can start as early as in your twenties. I mean, there's people even younger than that that have problems controlling their bladder. But it can start as early as in your twenties. And something called urge incontinence, where you have to like run to get to the bathroom and pull, have problems holding it in. By time you reach your seventies, there's more people in their seventies walking around with that than has the common cold. So it is so, and it's from the pad industry that it's a twenty billion dollar a year industry. Wow! So that just tells you how many people are
1: really dealing with these issues. I'm glad you so. brought incontinence up that in chapter. Well, in the introduction of my book, I talk about how really treating. I don't know if you know this, but I I early in my career became a continence nurse, certified continence nurse. So I I had found out that the number one reason for admittance to long term care facilities was incontinence, yeah. and I thought Damn. I need to help these patients have a little more dignity and be able to you know remain in their homes, and so. I actually got trained also as a nurse practitioner and fitting patients for pessaries, those sort of devices. <laughs> when I still, to this day, do pessary fittings, it's kind of an art. Not a lot of uh, providers around here do that, <laughs> but that's what actually kind of cued me into functional medicine because I thought if there's a non-surgical, non-pharmacological option for incontinence, and a pessary is not for urgent incontinence, just to be clear, but <laughs> then there have to be non-surgical, non-pharmacological options for all other conditions, and it kind of just opened my mind into to this functional medicine world, but. Going back to incontinence, let's talk about some solutions. So, yeah. even for younger women who are starting to experience this, what what
0: is your best advice? You know, it's funny because I'll tell you first of all, urogynecologists are amazing. We're all amazing. Uh, there's <laughs> only about 1,500 of us in the country, and we take care of specifically women with pelvic health problems. But it, there's also men that ha- would see a urologist. But I think when you go to a doctor, and I'm not saying don't go to a doctor, but what we're trained to do and what actually happens in the office becomes two different things mm. because a lot of times we get very limited time to spend with patients and everyone jumps to like let's do treatment. So unfortunately I see too many times that people are thrown on medications told that they need to have surgery because there's this pressure from the doctors that I need to fix it but then there's really there's so much you can do before you even get there. And surprisingly I think the biggest answer to Almost any medical condition in life is looking at your diet. Yeah. Because we know that. You know, you go back to Hippocrates, who said, Let food be thy medicine. And we've gotten away from that in some ways, and now we're heading back to it, where we're looking at the gut and the gut microbiome and how it affects different health systems. So, really, there's so many ways in that the gut can actually help your pelvis. Yeah. So, certain foods can be super irritating to the bladder. So, if you have like urge incontinence, which is like the most common cause where you're running to the bathroom all the time, you may be eating foods that are irritating you and not realizing it. Or maybe there were foods you were eating your whole life, they were fine. And then all of a sudden now you're, you're developing a sensitivity. So, and everybody's different in this realm, but typically the things that for most people will bother them are coffee, And even decaf. It has to do with the acidity. Yep. And it's still, decaf still has caffeine. People think, oh, I drink decaf. No, it still has caffeine. (laughs) So sodas, so anything carbonated can be very irritating. Tomatoes, which are in your nightshades, those can be very, very irritating to the bladder. Alcohol. And chocolate, so like all the good things, you know, you don't want to really go, want to go out for like an Italian, you know, dinner with a nice dessert and with alcohol because those are all the things that could that could potentially irritate the bladder. But you know, we're not saying like stop all those foods altogether. What I usually tell people is I'll give them a list of foods that tend to be in, like, start with those or and citrus citrus fruits. you. Yep. start with those and cut them out and see if it makes a difference. And if it doesn't make a difference or if it, if it doesn't make a difference, I mean, ultimately you'd like to cut them out for 12 weeks, but 12 weeks sometimes is really overwhelming for people. So I'll tell them like, just, just cut them out for two weeks and let's we'll see what happens. But if they say you do get better, you can just add the foods back one at a time and see if, if one of them bothers you. And you say, you've noticed like, okay, tomatoes bother me. Well, it doesn't mean you can't have tomato sauce ever again for the rest of your life. You just go, all right, you know what, either You go, well, when I eat that, I know it bothers me. Or there's things you can do to counteract it. You can just actually drink baking soda in water, like do a quarter of a teaspoon of baking soda in eight ounces of water, and that will neutralize the acidity. I've tried it myself. I can't stand the taste, but I have patients that swear by it. Or there's over-the-counter products called Preleaf, which is pretty much the same idea, but in a tablet form. So you're not having to taste that, that uh, sodium bicarbonate. So that's the, probably the easiest place to start. And then the other thing is this is counterintuitive, but people that have urinary tract issues tend to purposely dehydrate themselves because they're like, oh, I'm peeing a lot. So I'm just not going to drink. Well, that actually has the opposite effect yep. because now you're concentrating your urine and the concentrated urine is more irritating to the bladder. So there's a fine line between drinking a lot of fluids to kind of, you know, ultimately if you drink and your urine's clear, that's that's a good sign. And that should be enough that it kind of diluted enough so it's not irritating the bladder. So that becomes like a, a fine line with that.
1: Wonderful. Those are all wonderful, awesome tips. I, I'll i also add to that list dairy. So for some patients, not everyone, I mean, so for some patients, it's the obvious acidity that's causing that got to go, got to go, got to go right now feeling. Uh, but I've even had dairy cause patients problems. So sometimes they have to remove that. Again, dairy could be irritating the gut and it's also irritating the bladder. <laughs> so those are, those are great tips. What What happens to us as we age? So you kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, Um, as far as pelvic health is concerned, what's happening down there?
0: You know, one of the problems is it's happening all over the body, but we just (laughs) ignore the pelvis is that starting in our thirties, we start to lose muscle mass. And so every year we're losing about 30% of our muscle mass. And it's definitely, if you don't use it, you lose it. But you know, people go, all right, well, I can go to the gym, I can go for a walk, and that's going to exercise my other parts of my body. And people are like, you know, nobody even thinks about the pelvis until it's too late. And so what those weak muscles can lead to is they can lead to difficulty holding in the urine, holding in stool, holding in gas, but sure. they can also make it so that things in the pelvis start to droop. So for women, you know, the bladder may start drooping, the the vagina might start drooping. So really doing your kegels is the way to work out the vagina. Now, one of the problems with that, everyone goes, okay, yeah, I'll do my kegels, do my kegels. But a majority of people don't do them properly. They found that women often will push down instead of tighten up. And so I have a really good friend of mine who he explains it that he's like, picture that you're in front of the queen or you're on national television and you're about to fart and you want to hold in that fart. He's like, those are the muscles that you want to use. And he said, he said, ever since he's explained it, you know, like that, that you're in front of someone really important or you're on national TV, most people are like, okay, good. I know which muscles those are and they can learn to tighten them. And you know, it's something that we should all be doing, you know, every day if we can, but at a minimum three times a week. And and I usually instruct people, like, to try to tighten and hold it to a count of 10 and repeat that 10 times. Or you can do something what's called quick flex, where you tighten them really fast, you know, like tighten, 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 and then you do that 10 times, and then you relax, and then you do that for, re- repeat it for about 10 times. So, you know, um, there are some other exercises. I know a lot of people are not necessarily getting to the gym at, around this time, but um, even just sitting in a chair and rolling up a towel or putting a ball between your legs and squeezing against the ball, that can also tighten your pelvic floor So and get those muscles working again. So yeah, the, definitely we lose so much muscle max and it really affects the pelvis.
1: And that's such a good point. We, if we want to, I, I tell patients at least, if you really you know, want to be able to lift heavy, you start working your biceps so you can recruit and use that muscle as needed when you're going to go lift something heavy. Same is true with your pelvic floor. You want to try to hold in your urine, but you haven't worked those muscles in years. Well, there's not a lot to recruit, not a lot to use. So we have to be working those muscles. And as you mentioned, I think this—the pelvic floor uh, gets ignored. We we don't think about tightening those muscles. <laughs> so I tell patients at, at every stop sign. I've, I've you know I'm trying to tell patients ways to remember to squeeze their pelvic floor. So if they're driving at a stop sign, squeeze the pelvic floor. I mean, what whether well, brushing their teeth, whatever works for them. <laughs> I
0: used to tell people like at every commercial on TV, but now we all fast forward through the commercials. <laughs> you know,
1: so. Somehow incorporating this as part of a daily routine would be the best thing to do. So you're working those muscles. And if you don't know how, you can certainly see a pelvic floor physical therapist. I know postpartum, I was just like, I know too much. I need to stay ahead of the game. I wanted to go see (laughs) a physical therapist for the pelvic floor to help me because I wanted to make sure everything was okay (laughs) um, and that, that I didn't end up with incontinence. So very important. You might not know this, but building a healthy gut or gastrointestinal system is one of the most important things you should be working on to maintain your health and longevity. That's why actually in my book, Your Longevity Blueprint, I devote the entire first chapter to the gut. I like to compare the gut or gastrointestinal system to the foundation of your home. You have to have a strong gastrointestinal system upon which to build great health. So with that in mind, I want to share a few tips to help you do just that. The first step with improving your gut health is to clean up your diet, removing inflammatory foods, foods you may have sensitivities towards, and treating gut infections. Like I mentioned, I get into this in a lot more depth in chapter one of my book. Once you've done that, however, there are also some amazing nutrients that exist to help you heal further. Two of my favorite Your Longevity Blueprint combination powder products for helping patients heal their guts are called Gut Shield and GI Support. Gut Shield contains several important ingredients, including glutamine and zinc. Glutamine is the most important non-essential amino acid for gut healing and zinc is a top mineral for gut healing as well. Gut Shield also contains N-acetyl D-glucosamine and aloe vera. N-acetyl D-glucosamine is a mucin precursor that has been shown to increase the production of mucus within the GI tract. This is beneficial in coating the tract and protecting it. Gut Shield also contains deglycerized licorice root extract, also known as DGL, a form of licorice root that does not contain glycerizin which can raise blood pressure. Licorice has been known to treat and heal ulcers. It works as a demulcent to soothe the irritated tissue. It's antispasmodic, anti-inflammatory, and anti-allergenic. Aloe vera has been used throughout history to promote a normal inflammatory response. You may have used it on your cuts, scrapes, or burns as a child. Studies have shown that aloe vera is also specifically beneficial to the gastric mucosa in part through its ability to balance stomach acid levels and promote healthy mucus production. All these gut healing nutrients are packed into one little scoop of powder that can be added to a beverage of your choice or mixed into a smoothie. I recommend patients consume this consistently for at least three months for gut healing. My second favorite product for gut healing is called GI Support, a gut healing protein powder containing glutamine as well. The difference here is that GI support is also loaded with natural anti inflammatories like turmeric. It also contains arabinogalactins, which serve as prebiotic fiber. And it contains green tea extract, also known as EGCG, a potent antioxidant that further helps to reduce inflammation. It's the Cadillac of gut healing powders because it has protein, the amino acid glutamine, prebiotics, anti inflammatories, and antioxidants all in one scoop. And yes, it can be combined with Gut Shield. Consider taking the synergistic blend daily while focusing on cleaner eating. These products aren't needed forever, but they sure help expedite the healing process of your gut lining. Check out more product information on our website and use code HEALGUT for 10% off either product. That's gut shield or GI support at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Now let's get back to the show. What are the risks to the vagina? With aging. So other than having a weak pelvic floor, what else can happen? What happens is as we start getting that perimenopausal
0: period and menopausal period, our hormones start to change and we get moody. We tend to get hot flashes. But what happens to the vagina is the tissue starts to thin and this becomes very problematic, not just when it causes dryness or maybe can cause pain and discomfort during sexual activity, but it actually starts to change the pH of the vagina. And so, you know, we talk about the microbiome of the gut helping with body inflammation, but there's a microbiome in the vagina. And so there's healthy bacteria that likes to live in the vagina, lives in balance, keeps you from getting vaginal infections, keeps you from getting urinary tract infections. But now as we go into menopause, things get thrown off. So when Prior to menopause, that tissue is nice and thick and healthy because we have estrogen and it's, it's like multiple layers of cells thick. And when those cells die off, they slough off and the bacteria actually likes to eat what's called glycogen, which is in those cells. And that feeds our healthy lactobacillus. And so that keeps it going and protects us. And the lactobacillus protects us by actually making the vagina very acidic. The pH of the vagina is normally 3.5 to 4.5. And so it makes the vagina very acidic. And it also produces hydrogen peroxide, which chases away the bad bacteria. So now as you're going through menopause and menopause, you're not, you don't have that estrogen. And so we're not making those thick cells. Cells, and now your your cell layers are getting very, very thin. And we're only a couple cell layers thick. And it's not sloughing off. And so the lactobacillus doesn't have any food. So the lactobacillus dies off. And now you're talking, you're going to have a pH of the vagina closer to 5, 5.8, even higher. And then what ends up happening is now you have a perfect situation for these other bacteria to get in there. And people are always asking, like, how's the bacteria getting there? Like, I, I clean, I clean it's just bacteria that's around us is, you know, it's like picking up a cold. It just happens. We can't, you know, we can't live in a bubble. And a lot of the bacteria actually comes from our gut because the rectum and the vagina and the urethra, the 2BP throat is so close to together. Even everything's you, connected. Yeah. <laughs> that Even if you're wiping properly, there's going to be bacteria from the rectum that's going to get into the vagina. And once these quote, bad bacteria set themselves up, then it becomes, you know, you're more susceptible to recurrent vaginitis and it becomes difficult to get rid of. You're much more susceptible to recurrent urinary tract infections. So unfortunately during the perimenopausal and menopausal period, the nice thing is, yay, no more periods, but nobody gets the menopause memo
1: that we have all these other issues that start during that time. So- sure." So with a lot of my patients, to help improve that those problems, I do replace estrogen. And so we can kind of get into this conversation here, and I'll, I'll let you say your piece on this, but I, I like to not use Premarin or you know synthetic horse urine on patients. I instead like to use Estradiol, which is E2 or Estriol, which is E3. It has to be compounded. Uh, but using an estrogen cream has worked wonders in my patients. It's strengthened their tissues so they aren't so frail. They don't have pain with intercourse. They're not getting the UTIs. They're not getting infections. So I, I have found replacing estrogen can be very helpful in, in many of these cases. And are you talking about systemic replacement or vaginal? So both. So <laughs> yeah, so so I offer patients both. Some patients honestly don't want to take systemic estrogen replacement, so we'll just give them a vaginal um, option. Some of my patients are like, bring on the estrogen. I need it for my memory and my bones and <laughs> my hot flashes and whatnot. So, And those patients who we are really optimizing estrogen levels in, they usually don't even need the vaginal uh, option because their estrogen is higher uh, because of the systemic replacement.
0: Yeah. So, you know, medicine did a real disservice to women because, all right. So it started off when I first trained, it was like, everybody needs to be on hormones because it protects your heart and it's healthy and you need to be on it. And then all of a sudden they did this women's health initiative study and they stopped the study because there was a higher risk. And this was there's a lot of politics behind this one study too but there was there was potentially a higher risk of cancer and heart disease in the women that were taking both estrogen and progesterone together so everybody doctors included got scared and everyone was like no hormones and so for years and we're still dealing with this aftermath and this is I mean right. this we're talking oh my god I was like I was in training so we're talking like maybe close to I don't know if we're up to 20 years yet but we got to be getting close to yeah where this is like almost 20 years old now, but um, some so people are so scared of the hormones. Mm-hmm. And the problem isn't the hormones, it's what type of hormones you're using. And so that's the problem. So the study was done on an older population that may have had those risks, risks already. And then the other problem is they were using synthetic hormones in those, those studies. Given orally also. And or yep. yeah, and, and the combination of estrogen and progesterone. Yep. But even though that that's not bad, all the hormones that were used were synthetic. And we know that especially the synthetic estrogen, when it's broken down in the body, it makes these byproducts that we know are cancerous. So that they can trigger the genes to, you know, trigger onco, what's called oncogenes. So we know that they make this byproduct. So and same thing with the, with the progesterone. So when you're using these bioidentical hormones, which are hormones that are more geared to your system, you don't get those, those byproducts. We also know that the synthetic hormones create inflammation and we know inflammation can lead to a ton of different conditions, health conditions in the body. So yeah, I'm totally for the, the natural, the bioidentical hormones, not using the synthetic hormones so there get some. Here's the thing, though. that's interesting. There actually are some bioidentical estrogens that are on the market. Yeah, yeah. So there are some. So um, you know, because then you hear, then it was in the news, like oh, compounded. Hormones, like they don't, they differ from batch to batch and from place to place, and yeah, that can be true. But that's why you go to a reputable pharmacy that does the compounding. And you know what I like about the compounding is you can tweak the 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 hormones as you go. But I know some people because of the sometimes the cost of the compounded ones are a little bit more, and sometimes some insurances don't cover it. But there are some natural prescription options mm-hmm. too, too. But yeah, so there's systemic hormones you can take that go through your whole system. There's hormones that can be placed into the vagina that can either be compounded. I find that the two, and I'm going to bad mouth two of them, there were two on the market vaginally for years, Premarin, which mm-hmm. is derived from horse urine and that mm-hmm. has, has a lot of synthetic byproducts, and then estrates. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, I would get people here and there, that would be like, oh my god, it, it burns when I use those mm-hmm. creams, it burns when I use a cream. Well, you know what? As I got more into functional medicine, I found out why there's propylene glycol in those creams, which is a very irritating to mucosa and something that we don't want in our creams or in our cosmetics or, um, so that's why there's, there's a bunch of different other options that don't contain that. They, there's ones that can be compounded for vaginally. If you're someone's completely opposed to using a hormone in the vagina, then there's some great we've really made some leaps and bounds over the last couple of years. Probably since twenty sixteen, there's been the development of different kind of cosmetic and we say cosmetic, they they were derived from the cosmetic field with different lasers.
1: Mm, so Yeah, they, talk about that.
0: Yeah, the lasers have been a game changer because yes, they are a big upfront cost, but long-term, I actually did the math, they're cheaper than if you're filling your prescription for a lifetime. And so they took cosmetic lasers, which have been around since the 1980s, that we know that they... So a laser is just light energy and the light energy penetrates the tissue. So it's making a microscopic injury, which sounds terrible. (laughs) because there's no other way to say it, but it's making it like a microscopic channel in the tissue. But that microscopic injury is triggering the body to go, oh, wait a minute, something's wrong. I need to heal it. So it sends in all these growth factors to heal. And what it actually ends up doing is you increase the blood flow of the tissue. It increases the healing capacity of the tissue and the tissue regenerates. And this has been used cosmetically on people's faces since the 1980s. And then I wish I was the person who came up with this, but all of a sudden, well, in the United States, they were approved since 2016, but they were back, in Europe, they had been around for a lo- much longer. Someone was like, all right, well, why don't I just make this into a vaginal probe and it does the same thing? And, and that's what's been the game changer. It's a five-minute procedure. You come in, you have your vagina lasered usually the treatments are, are three treatments to fully regenerate it. And some people need a little bit more, but you do a minimum of three treatments and they're spaced anywhere from a month to two months apart. And that will last for about a year. And then it does wear off. Nothing's permanent because you can't stop the aging process, but then you come in just once a year and you get your like, kind of like your tune up and you get one other laser. So that's been, that's been wonderful. Then out of lasers, the industry just kind of exploded. Everyone's like, wait a minute, there's other things we can do to regenerate tissue. Let's apply it to the vagina. So there's a number of different companies that developed what's called radiofrequency. And radiofrequency uses sound waves to generate heat. And we know that when you heat tissue to a certain temperature, well, if we heat it too much, it damages it. But if we heat it just to a certain temperature, that it actually triggers a minor injury that triggers the body to want to heal and then thus regenerate. So we're using, we're tricking the body and using its healing properties. In combination with heat, so there's radio frequency, and now there's also a, some home units that you can buy that uses red light therapy. And we looking at the products like the V Fit or the V Fit Plus, which is a device that you use in the privacy of your own home. It has red light. We know that the wavelengths of red light penetrates tissue and causes tissue regeneration, and so this is something that you can use at home. I usually. I love that product, but I like to actually combine it on my patients. I'll combine, like, let's do, like, a laser get the tissue really good and then take your home device and keep it maintained with the home device. So it's so it's so fun, and I love it because it gives us really a lot of options. And, and I think my goal is to try to find non-surgical, safe options for people for their pelvic health.
1: Very interesting. Yeah, I've thought of bringing one of those on board to my practice, one of those lasers. It sounds like you're very much for them, and they've helped help your patients. They're wonderful. They're definitely, they're definitely worth it. I Like I said, I know
0: it's, it is a big upfront expense, but I, like I said, I did, I calculated how much people spend on their co-pays for those tubes of cream. And oh, over like a lifetime, you actually end up, yeah, I think like, it takes you like two years to break even. Sure. So Yeah.
1: Very interesting. And even the commercially available preparations for some patients can be very expensive. I mean, like you're alluding to the copays, they they really can be. So we've talked about estrogen deficiency and correcting that. And we've talked about kind of laser to help your, your tissues, we'll say regenerate or heal. What about improving the microbiome? So we already talked a little bit about diet. Are there specific probiotics that you recommend? How can we nurture our microbiome to also improve our pelvic health? So yeah, definitely. So we
0: need to go back and support the gut in general. And you talked about dairy before, so foods that tend to throw up your up your gut microbiome for in general are your gluten,s your sugars, and yeah. dairy. So those are your big three ones. So you know because we can get the gut microbiome, and, and if our gut's affected, it affects our hormones, it affects our immunity. So we actually to keep the pelvis. Healthy, we need to actually support the gut. But then there's also just adding in certain foods that help to support vaginal health. Is it's not just like taking lactobacillus, and you know, I get a lot of people like, oh, eat that yogurt that's supposed to be really good for your gut, and I forgot the name, which is good because I don't need to be bad mouthing anybody's brands, but it's not just that. There are specific lactobacillus that are specific for women's health. And a lot of people hear acidophilus and acidophilus Mm -hmm. is great, but there's also lactobacillus Crispidus, lactobacillus gasseri*, lactobacillus rhamnosus Mm -hmm. and ruteri. And so those are the more healthy bacteria we can get into the vagina by getting into our diet, the better. So the nice thing is there are so many companies now that have women's brands of, of probiotics so that you can find it. You can find it so much easier. You know, you look at the back and and you can do it through supplements or you can just do it through diet and just add more fermented foods. We've had our home been playing around with making some of our own fermented foods. I know now yogurt gets a little tricky because it is a dairy, but there is some thoughts that, you know, if you can tolerate dairy, that yogurt may not be as bad. So I leave it up to the person about with the yogurt. We've been making our own yogurt at home, which has been tons of fun. And I actually will take those women's vitamins, those probiotics. And when I make my, when I make my, um, my yogurt, I'll open one and put that in there. So I know that my yogurt actually even has some of those, those, strains, yeah. those strains in it, but even like kimchi or sauerkrauts or, um, and, and you can find any of this stuff in the supermarket now, but you want to make sure you don't want to get like a sauerkraut that's been canned. You want to get one that you have to find in a refrigerated section that's, you know, has live bacteria in it. And I love kombucha, which is fermented tea. So that's you know, that has a combination of both
1: healthy bacteria and healthy yeasts. Yep. Yep. Which also can help with just in general, preventing the urinary tract infections and just vaginitis period. Are there other supplements that you recommend for urinary health, like to prevent infections? What else are your next top uh, recommendations? Sure.
0: Cranberry is great. Now, but cranberry, there's a fine line of cranberry. So some people, the cranberry, because of the acidity of the cranberry can actually irritate their bladder. So it's something you have to try. But if it doesn't bother you, cranberry supplements are great to take. I tend towards, even though there really isn't any kind of data out there that there's data saying that cranberry can help, but we don't really know dosages. So, um, the problem with cranberry juice is it tends not to be as concentrated and it tends can to have be a lot sugar. Of yeah. So, I tend to like, I tend to like with the, the cranberry capsules, and then people can either take them all the time, or a lot of women are susceptible to urinary tract infections after sexual intercourse. Yep. And so, taking those supplements immediately after. After sex, and even for like a couple of days after, that's wonderful. D-mannose is a is a type of sugar that helps support. It's almost like a prebiotic. Helps support the healthy bacteria. D-Manos too now, it's also some people, it bothers them because some people that are have sensitivities to what's called the FODMAP sugars. Mm -hmm. There's a FODMAP diet that some people's intestines can't handle, like fructose. The FODMAP stands for like fructose and there's all these different sugars. So some people the D-Manos one may upset their the gastrointestinal system and make them more gassy, but if not D-mannose can be a life changer as something to take all the time for somebody that has recurrent urinary tract infections. Those, in in combination with probiotics, are probably my top three that I love.
1: Yep, I would totally agree. That's what I recommend for my patients too. And I I believe cranberry turns your urine more acidic, which is why you're saying some people can't tolerate it. But then in a more acidic environment, the bacteria can't survive. So that's how that works. Then D-mannose has properties as far as binding bacteria, so they don't bind to the bladder wall. So it is sticky like a sugar per se. So if it can bind the bacteria and the bacteria can't bind to the wall and you get, get rid of them, then yay, you're not getting the infection. So that's kind of my understanding of how D-mannose works. And I'm someone who has, who is on a low FODMAP diet, who has fructose intolerance. So if you're wondering if you have that, if you don't tolerate any of the alls, the sorbitol, xylitol, mannitol, those sort of sugars or the oses, the fructose, what whatnot, you may not tolerate D-mannose as well. So, And you probably will know by, by by trying it. But I would agree that D-mannose can be a lifesaver for many patients. I have um, a product that we use here called cystostatin. It's an orthomolecular-based product for patients who do, they, when they know an infection is coming on or after intercourse, if they know I'm just prone to infections. This has some natural antibacterials. It has uber-ursi in it as well. Uh, it has... It has some natural diuretics to help you purge the infection. their celery seed and their and dandelion, if I remember right, and then marshmallow, which is a demulcent. It's very soothing to the mucous membrane, so essentially helps soothe the the urethral tract and um, get rid of any sort of bacteria, so they don't climb up that that tract and cause problems. So that's a that's a lifesaver for many of my patients too. That's an ad, just an as needed. The other thing is, sometimes actually trying
0: to get the the vagina more acidic will actually even help. So, using boric acid suppositories can be placed in the vagina. And, you know, it used to be you couldn't find it or you had to have it compounded. Now, I mean, everywhere I look, there's a company that's coming out with their own version of boric acid suppositories. And, and really, and I, I actually have used boric acid to treat there's some infections, uh, ureaplasm and mycoplasm that are really super stubborn and they get into the urinary tract and that they usually are harbored in the vagina. They're really difficult to treat. And the antibiotics don't often work, but I've found that two weeks of of boric acid suppositories by acidifying the, the vagina will make it a hostile environment so that the your that reaplasm and mycoplasm doesn't want to be around anymore and it actually kind of rebalances things. So yeah, and, and using some more natural ways to treat with it. Because that's the thing is like, you know, people get these infections and now they go on antibiotics yes. and now we just threw off their gut microbiome and now they're more susceptible to inflammation and more infections. So it's like, I hate, I'm probably like, I am the doctor that does not like to do surgery and does not like to put people on antibiotics. We can keep you off of antibiotics and keep you away
1: from surgery. Then I've done my job for boric acid. Also for younger women, many times I'll give that to them preceding their cycle. If they know every single month before bleeding, I have these symptoms. We have to work on everything you've mentioned, like improving the microbiome and optimizing hormones, whatnot, but using boric acid, even in the days preceding the cycle can many times help resolve those, those cyclical infections that patients feel like they're getting. Oh,
0: go ahead. I'm sorry. to It echoes again with pH because the vagina wants to be acidic, but when you're, cycling and getting the period, the blood is more basic. And so it throws off the pH of the vagina. And that's why some women are susceptible to yeast and and bacteria right around their periods. Or I don't exactly understand why nature built us this way, but women's vaginas are very acidic. So 3.5 to 4.5, ideally, like if we can keep it around four, we're happy. But men's semen is closer to pH of seven or eight. So I don't know why we're built like that, but some women, because of sexual intercourse with men, that will throw off the pH of the vagina. And that's another reason why they're susceptible to recurrent vaginitis and recurrent bladder infections. So trying to acidify the, the vagina again, get those things, you know, the cranberry, the D-mannose, the probiotics, like try to get things
1: back in balance. Yes, um, I do want to comment on two things since I have you here. I have to ask you. So also, we talked a little bit about the aging population, but back to the younger population and just struggles that a lot of women like myself have experienced includes conditions like endometriosis. And I thoroughly believe everything you've said today, especially the diet change, is uh, can greatly improve those sort of pelvic health conditions also. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, you know what's really scary when we look at endometriosis. So, endometriosis is where the lining of the uterus, instead of sloughing off every month with your period, for whatever reason, it goes kind of backwards and it go. We're an open system, so it goes back up through the you know through the uterus up into the fallopian tubes and into your abdominal cavity and starts growing on other other areas. There's actually been some some strange reports where it's gotten into the blood system and and has. They've found it in people's lungs and other areas. What I think is really scary is that I've seen so that in combination with polycystic ovarian syndrome, where women make a multiple ovarian cysts, those two conditions, which can cause pelvic pain, they were common when I started training, but they have exploded in the last 10 years. And it's like, why are we seeing so many more cases of this? And why are women really suffering with these conditions? Some of the theories are our inflammatory American diet. You know, we do know that, you know, what you are, what you eat. And if you're eating things that are inflaming you, that you're going to trigger inflammation in the body. And some people, you know, some people get arthritis, some people get interstitial cystitis, which is a, Bladder inflammatory. Some people get endometriosis. Some people get, you know, these ovarian cysts. But the other thing I think is really scary is the amount of environmental estrogens Mm -hmm. and the plastics in our environment, or some of the endocrine disruptors. There's a lot of chemicals in our cleaning products and our cosmetics that actually disrupt our normal hormones. Or tricks the body into thinking that like, these chemicals, your body will perceive as an estrogen when it's not. And so we as a population or whole are being exposed to so many more of these environmental toxins and we're seeing a rise in these conditions like the endometriosis mm-hmm. and the polycystic ovarian syndrome because of these things.
1: Totally agreed. I, I've done several episodes talking about endocrine disrupting chemicals. It's scary because they're everywhere. Starting at a very young age with plastic in our baby toys and plastic, you know, lined shower curtains. And, you know, we eat out of ketchup. We have ketchup that comes from a plastic bottle. The plastic specifically, the fragrances are really impacting our hormones and can lead to these conditions. So I totally agree. I think those are the top two drivers of those sort of conditions, the inflammatory foods and then the toxic, toxic world we live in. Uh, the second thing I wanted to go back to and ask you about is your thoughts on oxalates. So you mentioned interstitial cystitis, and I do that just now, and I have found in my patient population that sometimes oxalates even, foods that are healthy, we think are healthy, and they are for many people, can drive up conditions like interstitial cystitis. So do you want to briefly mention? Yes.
0: Yeah, so oxalates um, are these chemicals that are found mostly in your like leafy greens. So we we joke about it because I have a, a colleague that calls it killer kale. And I can tell you clockwork, January and February, I will see the highest rates of kidney stones, interstitial cystitis flare-ups. And vulvodynia. So, vulvodynia is pain in the vulvar area. And this is all from buildup of oxalates in your system. And why is it happening in January and February? Well, because people are trying if you're to get like healthy. me, we go, on oh, my New Year's resolution, I'm going to eat healthy. And people start eating more leafy greens. They start eating their kale. They put it in their smoothies. And, you know, once again, it's not that you need to stop, but certain people are just more susceptible to these high oxalates and they can cause kidney stones. They can cause inflammation. I mean, we're talking red, beefy, like irritated inflammation in the bladder, in the vulvar area, in the the vaginal area. And it can be seriously painful. So if you have those conditions, first thing you want to look at is let me try cutting out these high oxalate foods and see if it makes a difference. So yeah, but every every January, every like January to February is like the oxalate season. So
1: very interesting. I'm glad, glad to hear your opinion on that. So tell us where uh, listeners can find you. I know you have a podcast as well. So tell us about that. Yeah, you
0: can find the podcast, Some of Your Parts podcast, on anywhere you listen to podcasts. But it's a women's wellness podcast where we just talk anything women's wellness. And really, the focus is that you're greater than the sum of your parts because you really can't separate. You know, if you're having a vaginal issue, like we've talked about today, we need to look at your diet. We need to look at other areas of the body. It's not just the pelvis, it's not just the vaginal issue. I also have a health summit coming up called the Happy Vagina Rally. And it's for perimenopausal and menopausal women. And we have three days of experts just talking all things vagina. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, all those things. Just look up Dr. Betsy Greenleaf, you'll find me. And then I have my website, drbetsygreenleaf.com and my practice website, which is greenleafbewell.com and our pelvic health store, which is pelvicfloorstore.com. Soon i 'm working on a book soon to be coming <laughs> is the
1: vagina diet book so Ooh, I like um, it it 's coming <laughs> so I like it a lot. keep me yeah. posted on that we 'll post all the links to where listeners can connect with you in the show notes. so I have two final questions for you so one, I hear you have a free gift for our listeners, so tell us what that is So I have a list of your
0: top ten pelvic health tips, so these are the top ten secrets on how to keep your pelvis
1: healthy we'll provide that to you. And it's a great resource. Thank you. Thank you very much. And then lastly, what is your absolute top longevity tip? You know, I think that the biggest tip is we can't
0: take our parts as separate. That if we're having symptoms someplace, and in my Specialty in the pelvis, then we need to look elsewhere. And it's so it's not and not just diet. And we didn't even talk about you need to look at your sleep, you, look, you need to look at your hydration, you need to look at your stress levels, you need to look at your diet. And all you, those are so sound like easy answers, but really those are the keystones to your health and, and keeping your body healthy. So if you're having problems anywhere in the body, but in particular, you know, from my standpoint, the pelvis, we really need to get those in balance first.
1: And finding a functional medicine practitioner, someone who has additional training can help you identify that. Well, thank you, Dr. Greenleaf, for coming on the show today and reminding us of the importance of improving our many times neglected pelvic floor. So you're a wonderful guest. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. It was such an honor to be here. Well, that was a fun interview with a pelvic floor expert. I'd encourage all you listeners to get those kegels, those pelvic floor exercises done weekly, if not daily. I'm sure Dr. Greenleaf would agree. They will pay off long term. Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, the course is 50% off. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I read all of the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, or how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. The podcast is produced by the team at Counterweight Creative. As always, thanks so much for listening. And remember, wellness is waiting.